Hey, this is Leslie, host of the Rogue Ones podcast. Thank you for listening to this show. You know, I did this limited series in 2018 and 2019. The world was a wildly different place, but knowing that people are still listening to it now and benefiting from these stories brings immense satisfaction. So thank you. If you want to keep up with my own rogue adventures, you can follow me on Substack. Yes, I have one too. An easy link to find that is leslieethompson.com slash Substack. I write on there frequently, but then I'll also post audio vignettes that don't fit into a typical podcast framework. I've been busy, and I bet you have been too, Rogue One. So thanks for tuning in, and I hope to hear from you soon. Now, here's the episode, and I hope you enjoy. You're listening to the Rogue Ones podcast, conversations with extraordinary people doing fascinating things that will encourage us to live with a bend toward the remarkable. The guest you'll meet on this episode coaches celebrities and talent across the country to be better versions of themselves, ultimately, for the purpose of giving back to others. Lots of quotable quotes and heaps of wisdom today, my friends. Keep listening. Greetings, I'm Leslie Eiler Thompson, and I have the privilege of introducing you to some folks that will pour a little wisdom and encouragement into your day through this limited podcast series. This podcast series lives in no man's land between character building, human interest, entrepreneurship, and business, and today's guest exemplifies this balance. Bill Kakmus is just about the only person doing what he does in the country. He works with top-tier talent, from news anchors to celebrities to athletes, to make them better for their job. Now that may sound vague, and that would be because what he does is rather abstract. You might call him a talent coach, you might call him a therapist, you might call him a mentor. Truth be told, he's all of these things. And because of the caliber of people he's coached over the years, he has a wealth of understanding of the human spirit and how to embolden it for fruitful living. The first part of this episode will give you a peek into his background, and hidden within it are gems to take away for your own rogue journey. Through his telling of previous experience with the clients he's worked with, Bill bestows upon us truth to keep for the times we aren't sure what to do next, creatively, professionally, personally. I want to go ahead and share my favorite quote from this episode right off the bat. This is a great example of the things you'll hear over the course of the next few moments. Bill says, it's not about obtaining the goal, it's about having the goal. Mastery is a journey, it's not a destination. So my friend, if this resonates with you, I think this episode will be an ointment to your wounded soul. I now have the delight of introducing you to Bill Kakmus. Well, Bill, you have been called a talent coach, a show doctor, um, host whisperer and the fixer, all of those things. All of those things. You are uh, the superhero of making people shine <laughs> uh, in communication outlets. You're also a goal coach and vision coach, sort of all of these things wrapped in once, right? Is that a really good way to? Uh, pretty much. I'm, I'm very holistic in terms of what I do because at the end of the day, my job is to get people out of their own way to do their job. Sometimes that's a technical issue. Sometimes it's about their life or their understanding of how to deal with the people around them. And it's always different. What are some of the earliest whispers of this? I mean, this is a very abstract world, wonderful world you live in. But are there, are there things that you can trace back 
through your life, the earliest kind of signs that this was your calling? You know, people ask all the time how to do what I do, how to get involved with what I do. And, and there's no school for it. There's no um, uh, academic uh, uh, master's degree in terms of what <laughs> I do. So I was on stage since I was six. And I did in theater in theater, right? Is that yeah, yeah? My mother had me on stage since I was a little kid, and so I did a lot of you know professional work in theater in my teens, and in my twenties and thirties, I went to Los Angeles and did a lot of television and film as an actor. But as long as I could remember, what I really enjoyed was uh, working with people and helping people to solve whatever problems they had, especially for whatever weird reason, if it had to do with entertainment. You know, God gave everybody something. I just happened to get that thing where you walk into a room full of crap and you go, you know what? There's a pony here somewhere. All we have to do is find the pony. <laughs> if we find the pony, groom it, and fix the pony, all this crap will just disappear. And that's always been my calling. I don't know why, and I don't know where it came from. I don't think I had any formal training when I was young, but through high school, I just remember helping and, and, and learning how to direct early on, reading a lot. Um, direct in like a, a theatrical yes, setting? Yeah, or okay. directing, well, actually directing anything, anything that was going to be uh, in the public, uh, public eye, whether it was uh, skits or theater or people speaking, people would ask me to help out as a third eye and, and direct it. Hmm. So that was always there. And it was always something I enjoyed. It's just not something that I ever thought of about making money doing. What I did was act because my mother always wanted me to be an actor. Why was that? Why do you think? I don't know. You know, I think because she, she grew up in a time where stars meant something. Sure. And so she always, I'm sure, wanted to be uh, in that kind of limelight and, and never could. So... It fell on me. But every time I would do something, she would say to me, you should be on a soap opera. Anything I would do, television, film, uh, stage plays, uh, speeches, she would see it and she, she'd go, I'd say, Mom, what do you think? She, she, she would say, you should be on a soap. So I go to Los Angeles. I do all of these uh, television shows and I, I do a couple of films. And she always used to say, you should be on a soap opera. Well, one day, guess what? <laughs> I was on a soap opera. Days of our lives, right? Yes, days. Oh, my goodness. So I get a contract on days, and I'm on it for a while. And, and after three or four months, I thought, I'm going to go home and, and see mom and dad just to visit. So I took a little vacation. And when I got home, mom didn't say anything about the soap. And I thought, well, she's excited to see me. She's just not in that headspace where she's going to. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let it go. So that night at dinner, she doesn't say anything. The next morning at breakfast, she doesn't say anything. By noon, now I'm aggravated. I went, Mom. She said, yes. I said, I'm on a soap opera. She said, I know. I said, well, you've been telling me my whole life since I was six years old. I should be on a soap opera. I'm on a soap opera. What do you think? And she said, honey, I'm sorry. I haven't seen it. I said, I've been on it for three months. <laughs> Mom. How is how have you not seen it? And she said her show, her soap opera was The Young and the Restless. Oh no. And it came on 
during the same time that mine. On a different network. On a different network. And so she wasn't watching. And she, you know, VCRs. Sure. Had, she had no idea how to program a VCR. So she didn't tell you which soap opera. That was the thing. I said, it wasn't, yes, it had to be her soap. The, <laughs> the second she said that to me, I thought, it was like a ton of bricks fell on me. Went, oh, man, my whole life, I have been acting for her. My whole life. And I was good at it. I made great money at it. But I didn't love it. Because acting is a lot of waiting. Mm. It's a lot of learning lines. That's just hanging out and for you know three hours of waiting for three minutes on film. When I realized suddenly that I had been doing this for her, I thought, when this gig is done, I'm done. I'm going to just try something else. I'm going to try doing what I love doing in terms of making money at it. Because I always coached and I always directed and I always taught, but I never really did it for money. I did it because I enjoyed it. So <clears throat> after the soap was done, I just put up my shingle and it was like a floodgate. I started to get work right and left because I had helped so many people up to that point. A lot of them had been... Uh, high-profile individuals, and they would suggest to other people, they would refer me once they knew that I was doing it uh, for a, a living. And that's how that happened. So the transition wasn't super scary for you. It, oh, you no. stopped and off you went. Yeah, yeah no, because I've been doing it my whole life. And uh, truthfully, I would be doing what I'm doing now whether I was making uh, a career at it or whether I just did it because I enjoyed it. I'm always going to find a way to survive and make money and eat. Um, you've worked with people ranging, you, you say entertainment, but you've also worked with athletes. You've worked with, polit I mean, just anybody. Yeah. What was the most, I'm thinking specifically like in Hollywood level, what was the most transformative experience you've had with a client without naming names? I've got so many stories. I don't even know where to, where to... You know, talking about sports people, the first uh, big professional athlete I worked with, his name was Kenny Norton. And Kenny was the uh, heavyweight champion of the world at the time. And Kenny had just done a film called Mandingo. And right after Mandingo, Kenny's management said, Kenny, acting classes might not be a bad thing for you. And so I started working with Kenny. At the same time, Kenny is getting ready to defend his title. Oh, wow. And one day Kenny comes in and he looks like somebody's just taking a bat and just beating on him. And, he, and, I, and Kenny was this huge Adonis of a guy. Very sweet man. Kill you in a second. But very <laughs> sweet. So teddy he, bear type. Teddy, yes, teddy bear killer. So he walks in. I said, Kenny, where you been? He said, man, I was just sparring. I said, Kenny. I said, what's the hardest thing about winning? And I thought Kenny was going to say, oh, you know, getting my head beaten in every day, not seeing my kids for weeks at a time. He said, the hardest thing about winning, he said, once you win, you're not allowed to lose. And that was huge to me. And I thought, I said, Kenny, then why do you do it? And then Kenny did his Kenny thing. He said, hey, baby, it's what I do. I win, it's what I do. <laughs> <clears throat> but... Early on, just in terms of that, because I've worked with a lot of uh, professional athletes since, a lot of gold medalists, and a lot of these folks did something stellar early in their career, and then they spend the rest of their life, life chasing after it. On the other hand, it's who they are. 
they can't not do it. You know, they, that's just, it's just who they are. There was something in one of your books where you say when you, when you work with athletes, they don't necessarily take notes. They just, they want to know what to do yeah. and how to do it. Just tell me, just put me in coach. Just put me in coach. Yeah. Because th- th- their whole life has been coaching and they don't want to take a note. They don't want to read a book. They don't want to know conceptually why they couldn't care less. Just tell me what to do and I'll do it. So that's what, in one way, they're the best in terms of coaching. And another way they're the worst because you have to keep telling them again because they didn't learn why. Right. <laughs> so, so I just sat down, I just had a, a, a Titan, Tennessee Titan, uh, come to me and he said, uh, I said, so why are we here? He said, I'm doing a speech coach. I said, great. What are you talking about? He said, I don't know. <laughs> I said, but he's excited. He's excited it. about it. He said, I don't know. I said, all right, well, uh, what's your message? He said, I don't know. <laughs> and I said, well, who are you talking to? And he had to look in his phone to find out who, who he was talking to, some corporation. Some, and so he's, I said, so why are you here? He said, I need a speech. He said, wow, man. I said, you know, I would imagine you'd want a speech that conveys a message. He said, yes, sir. <laughs> I said, awesome. I said, so would you want it to be your message instead of my message? And he thought I had to think about that. Sure. He went, okay. He he just needed to do a speech. That's right. That's, That's right. all he needed to do was to do a speech. And so I had, it was two sessions we were together, just getting him to tell me his life story. And once I could get all of these stories together, and I could cobble together a, a few stories that had a central theme, And so I sat down with him and I thought, all right. And I said to him, I said, listen, here's what I'm thinking. Your message seems to be this. And the stories that you've told me that exemplify that seem to be this story, this story, this story. And he looked at me and went, wow, that's really good. (laughs) I said, it's you. (laughs) It's not me. It's you. You mentioned athletes can sometimes be the best and worst. Is there a group of folks that... You just always know going into it, this is going to be bad, or you have to prepare yourself. News people are the worst. Uh, and I love, look, I do it right now, this year, 70% of what I've done is our news stations and anchors and reporters and weathercasters. So, you know, I love them and I love the business. But just in terms of, of the difficult, the level of difficulty in general, it's news people because they're dubious to begin with. That's why they got into the business, you know? So they're always going, asking questions and, and not believing and why would I have to do that? And which is fine. A lot of times that's why I get called is because uh, no one else to, can get these people to do something. So I have to convince them to do it. I have gotten a lot of, over the years, a lot of, I've gotten things, people have thrown stuff at me and, and yelled at me. And, and it's not me. It's never me, because they don't know me. But the idea that they have to change who they are to do their job just gets them crazy. And so it's, I understand it. I saw a video <laughs> once of, uh, you were talking about a meteorologist you worked with. Oh, jeez. You, you because it was, it was like a sizzle reel of things. You said, well, sometimes it doesn't work. No, no, no. Tell me about, tell me about this meteorologist, oh, man. Oh, my gosh. This guy was crazy. <clears throat> I, got a, I got a call from the news director saying, I need you to, I've got a problem with a particular person. I said, what's the problem? He said, you know what? You're just going to have to see it. 
So he sends me a videotape of this guy on the air. But instead of talking about the temperatures, right in the middle of it, he turns to the female anchor, who's not, you can't see her because it's just him. He turns to the female anchor and he says, hey, uh, Shannon, you want to go out on a date? And she goes, excuse me? <laughs> and she said, this guy says, he opens up his jackets and he does, he does a little shimmy with his body and he says, wouldn't you want a piece of this? Oh, no. Oh. <laughs> right? Live television. <laughs> <laughs> and she's, she's going, you know what? Just get back to the weather. And he would do crazy, goofy stuff, right? So <laughs> I called the news director and I said, and he said, can you help me? I said, yeah, fire him. And I, he said, I can't fire him. I said, why? He said, because he's a train wreck. I said, isn't that why you'd want to fire him? He said, no, people love to watch him because he's a train wreck. He's, I said, well, then what's the problem? He said, the problem is it's a severe weather market. And when there's severe weather, they'll turn to somebody else because they think this guy's a goofball. They'll watch him to have a laugh, but they're not going to watch him for the weather. So he said, I need you to come Allow him to do what he does, but at the same time, get him to, you know, be the weather guy. And I said, look, you know, I, I can, all I can do is come there and give it my best shot. He said, well, you're my last hope because I have, I've got a lot of pressure. I, and I get a lot of that too. Many times I will uh, get an administrator or whomever that will say, you're our last hope. Yeah. Fix it or we have to fire them. I hate being that guy, but a lot of times I'm that guy. So I came in and uh, I flew into town that night before the next day when I'm going to work with them. That night I'm in the hotel room. I'm watching the news. I'm watching their show. And we get to the weather segment. This guy gets on and right in the middle of his weather, he turns to the viewer and goes, just so you know, they've got a coach coming in to work with me tomorrow. <laughs> And, he's, and then he starts in on coaches. And this guy is probably boozing and drinking his and crazy. And he says, oh, yeah, like, like all this guy wants is a paycheck. And he's going to come in here. And he thinks he's going to talk to me. He does a whole number on. Yeah, 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 crazy. And I'm in my hotel watching go, with my jaw. I don't even know how to respond <laughs> to this. So anyway, I met the guy the next day. The nicest, sweetest Guy on the planet. I'm just looking at him going, I'm thinking to myself, is this the same guy? I mean, everything I said, he said, yeah, you're right. Yeah, got to do that. Yeah. And he told me what his motivations are and what he wanted. And I said, great. All right. I can help you. Do you think if you keep going down this path, you're going to get those things? He said, yeah, yeah, I get it. He said, but you know what? When I'm out there and I'm doing it, it feels so good. And he, I, he said, I, you know, I get a lot of uh, compliments when people see me on the street. And I said, I get it. But do you feel that they're laughing with you? Or do you feel like they're also laughing behind your back at you? Mm. And he went, yeah, it's that too. I said, all right. So look, I can help you. I cannot help you. It's up to you. What do you want? He said, no, help me, man. You know, help me to get what I want. So we worked. I gave him things he could do. And he, he could have, doing what I told him to do over a short period of time, uh, changed his uh, character, keeping who he was, but also uh, creating respect for uh, his profession and, and who he was. Because they had, it was a growing market. So people, he had new eyeballs looking at him every day. So I'm thinking, this is awesome. Mm -hmm. It's worked so well. He loves me. The news director loves me. 
I'm just riding high. I go out. I'm thinking, because this was going to be tough, man, and it works out so well. I'm at the airport waiting to get on my flight and, to go home, and, I, and the news is on. And it's their station. I'm going, oh, cool. You know, so I'm see your work. I, I can see my work. Aww. And this guy gets on and he gets in front of that key and he says, the coach was here today. <gasps> and then he, and he says, uh, this is how he wants me to do the weather. And then he starts doing this dance routine. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. This kind of crazy uh, song and dance, crazy routine. And and ripped off of his shirt while he was doing it. So he was in one of these, uh, you know, Italian, uh, white Italian tank tops that he ripped off his clothes. So he was in that tank top and he's dancing around in that tank top saying to the viewers, this is now that I've been coached, this is what they wanted me to do. So I thought, well, Well. (laughs) yeah, I can't win them all. Right. Have you ever had anybody that you get done working with them and you 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 genuinely have to say to whoever it is that has hired you? I don't know that this is the best person for you, or I might suggest that you look for someone else. Um, I will have the people who hire me say, where, where do we go from here? You know, what else can they do? And there's, there are times where I've been able to say, look, there's a ceiling and they've hit it. There are two parts to a, any kind of craftsman. There's talent and there's technique. Talent's a God-given thing. You can't buy talent. You can't create it. Nobody can give you talent. You're either talented or you're not. Some people have a lot of it. Some people have a little. Some people don't have any. But whatever you have is what you have. I can't tell you the number of parents over the years who have asked me to give their kids talent. Oh, dear. Yeah. You know, that only comes from one place. Now, you're not born with technique. You've got nothing. Technique is something that you build along the way. And the more technique you have, the more it supports your talent. That's why 87% of an athlete's career is practice. Because the game is nothing to them. When they get on the field, they can't be worried about technical things. They've got to they've got to have so much technique that it just supports all of their talents, right? So <clears throat> I've got a, another Titan a couple of years ago, and I went and watched them practice. And afterwards, I'm talking to the guy, and I said, you got to hate practice. He said, no, I love practice. I said, come on. He said, no, no, I really do. I said, why? He said, because it's the only time I get to fall on my butt. And I said, why is that important? He said, because... It's the only time you learn anything. He said, when I'm playing a game, I can't try out things because I, I got mouths to feed, man. I got to stay in my lane. Now, his lane was a big lane. Yeah, that's you know. a pretty big... <laughs> but he said, but if I just stay in my lane in my career, someone's going to pass me. You know, I won't have this job long because there's always guys younger right behind me that are going to take over. So I got to keep learning stuff, but I can't do it on the field. So I got to have practice, right? So technique is, is uh, hugely important. And so, you know, I can give you all the technique in the world, but if you, if you don't have the talent to tell a joke, funny is in the blood, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. people can be better, but really all they're doing is heightening whatever talent that they have. Mm. So there, there are times where uh, people who hire me say, where do we go from here? And I'll say, look, this is it. This, you're getting the best you're going to get. And that's if they really stay on it and they do what I'm telling them to do. So I've never told anybody to fire somebody. I've never done that because, because um, it's not what I do for a living. Mm-hmm. I try to, my job is to make you the best you can be for your job. That's my job. Mm-hmm. My job is not to say to anyone, you don't deserve mm-hmm. you know, a career. You don't deserve to succeed. 
That's not what I do. The teacher is only as good as the student, period. I don't care, you know, how great you are as a teacher. If you have a student that doesn't care, then what are you going to do? I'll return to my conversation with Bill Kakmus in just a moment. Up next, we talk about the voices inside our heads. Yes, we all have them. And most of the time, they're lying to us. So stay tuned. If you are new to the Rogue Ones podcast, I'd like to welcome you and invite you to subscribe to this show. Bill is the 19th Rogue featured, and at its completion, there will be 22 folks featured in this podcast series. Their areas of interest range from music, to writing, to powerlifting, to dog sled racing, and a lot in between. We work to humanize these people who are living remarkable lives, so we may learn to do the same. Find all episodes, past and present, at RogueOnesPodcast.com. Let's get back to the conversation with Bill, starting with a major plot twist that I don't think you would have expected. Bill is actually an introvert, which I love. Here we go. Something that's I think is surprising about you is that you've said you are an introvert, yeah. which I think a lot of people, uh, that'll that's a disconnect for some people because you spend so much time around people, in front of people, with people. Right. And I don't know that it's necessarily true that if you're just with people, that means if you're an introvert, that you don't enjoy it. How has introversion affected the way that you do your work? I just had to learn early on how to power through it. You know, I I don't like going to parties. I don't like going to big social events. I don't like chit-chatting about the weather. I don't enjoy it. But... I've learned over time how to pull that part of Bill that can do it out to the forefront and let him play for a while. I have to, I have to talk myself into going out to parties every single time. Here's what I've learned. You know, if there's one secret to all of this, and maybe through my own introversion, it's helped. What I've been able to teach people is the phrase, it's not about you. It's not about you. If you're, if you're uh, nervous about something, if you uh, get jitters about something, because I'm always called in to help people take care of, you know, deal with their nerves. A lot of the reasons they get nervous is because they're worried about themselves. Mm-hmm. How do I look? How do I sound? Do they like me? And it's not about you, right? Because you right. can't make people like you. They're either going to like you or they're not. All you can do is be the best version of you you can possibly be. And and if you focus your attention on their needs and uh, uh, you know how they're going to get through and, and, and what they love, if you can do that, then the world's a better place and you're better for it. So getting over the introversion is, is always saying to myself, and I have to say it to myself every day, it's not about you. that's a transforming thought and you're in the business of transforming things I think also as a very broad umbrella yeah switching gears for a second so you do a lot of speaking as well in fact I heard you first on music business radio you speak at colleges you speak for all sorts of people and something I heard you say once that really resonated with me was um, the voices in our heads we all have them and and so you actually have a name for yours Right, uh, the voice that speaks to me. His name is Beelzebub, yeah. <laughs> which is which is a demon, a name for a demon. Yeah, right? yeah, he's a demon. 
How do we? And we all have them. He's not the demon. Right. But he's, he's, <laughs> he's a, a demon. one of them. <laughs> yeah. We all have these voices in our heads yeah. that are telling us you can't do it, you aren't worthy of it, or you don't they will they will hate you, all these things. And we can't get rid of them. Right. I don't think that's a, something that can be done. It's not possible. It, it's hardwired into our system because the you know, millions of years ago or whatever, when we were living in caves, we needed Beelzebub because Beelzebub said, Hey man, don't put your hand in that fire. You know, you're you're gonna get hurt. Don't chase after that mammoth all by yourself. You're gonna get hurt. You know, don't have an argument with your wife because you're gonna lose. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Beelzebub was that voice. And so, but millennia later, we've learned how to deal with all of these things. But now Beelzebub is just hardwired in us and he's always there telling us that we're not good enough, we're not pretty enough, we're not smart enough, we're not talented enough. And, you know, my voice is always going on. It's always saying, you know, you can't do that. You know, you're not going to be good at that. Or do you really think you made a difference, Bill? Mm. And so Beelzebub manifests itself in nerves. But many times people have these nerves because they're listening to Beelzebub and they're they're paying attention to Beelzebub and they're wanting the answer that Beelzebub is asking. And the so Beelzebub will say, I don't think they like you. And instead of going, man, I don't care, saying, oh, well, what do we do? What should we do? I want them to like me. I need them to. And so... We're back to that concept of it's not about you. It's not about you. The, as, the, as soon as you think, the times in our lives where the, we're the most uh, uh, nervous and we get the most, uh, 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 we, we get all those kinds of shakes are the point, times in our lives when it's, we're making it about ourselves. Uh, when we're in an interview, when we're on a first date, when we're a public speaking, because we're so worried about how other people think about us that and it's something we can't control and that's what gives us all those nerves so when they tell you look out in an audience and imagine them in underwear the only reason that works if it works is because it's taking it off of you and it's putting it on them you're concerned about them you're worried about them it puts the attention off of yourself and that's why that supposedly uh, that that works if that makes any sense so uh yeah Everybody has it. There's no way to get rid of it, but there is a way to circumvent it. You know, there is a way to, there's a workaround to Beelzebub. When you work with these clients, a lot of what you're doing is goals. You know, you say you walk in with the, the, the weatherman, the meteorologist. You you're say, right. what do you want from this? Goal casting, vision casting. How can we develop a vision for our lives that, that allows us to be remarkable, that allows us to um, have interesting opportunities come our way? What I found over the years, people are very hesitant to make goals because subconsciously they're worried that they're going to fail. The goal is not going to happen, and because it doesn't happen, they will have failed, and because they failed, they're not, they don't deserve to be on the planet. Now, interestingly enough, and I've worked with a lot of high-profile high uh, people over the years, a lot of successful people. Most of these people, when they started out, what they're doing now wasn't the goal when they started. <laughs> it was something else. But the reason they got there was because they were bold enough to, to create and have a goal. It's not about 
obtaining the goal. It's about having the goal. Mastery is a journey. It's not a destination. You know, I, I did uh, martial arts for years. And it's really not about the belt. When I went to my sensei and I said, why do we have yellow, green, brown, and black? And across the street, they have green, yellow, brown, and black. And he said, and my sensei looked at me and said, look, the only thing we use belts for in Korea is to hold up our pants. <laughs> you know, belts, it's a very Western thing that you, you have to have these. It's you, like the Bloomin' Onion from uh, whatever, Outback. Yeah, yeah. Like they don't even have Bloomin' Onions. In the, in, <laughs> exactly, you know? exactly. So the idea that we have to succeed on a daily basis, that we have to win that medal every day. Look, man, you have to have a goal. If you have that goal and, you know, if, if you can create that three-year plan, five-year plan, 10-year plan, whatever it is, you have to create it knowing that it's going to change. And that's okay. The goals you create today, they're not going to be there because you're going to learn more. You're going to change as a human being. Different things are going to happen in your environment, which is going to change your career path or your life path. And you're going to change it because you're going to realize on the way that, you know what, that's actually a better goal over there. Something you never would have realized had you not been on the path to begin with. I guess, to me, the answer is, if you want to have the kind of incredible life that you think you deserve, you have to be willing to set a goal for yourself that's far enough away. You know, they say in Eastern philosophy, they say, if, if you keep hitting the bullseye, the target's too close. If every time you shoot that arrow, you hit the bullseye, move the, move the bullseye back. You're too, it's too close, right? Because you need some, we need things to strive for in this life. As human beings, we, we need games to win. That's just who we are. The second we don't have anything to, to win, to do, to, to create, to be, we start to die. The fantastic thing about creation is, is we were given the opportunity to find and build and grow and, and, and discover and, and create. And, but all of those things have to happen, will happen, only if you're able to put a goal that's, mm. that's f- so far out there. You can still see it, but man, you're not hitting the bullseye every time. Yeah. You got to strive a little bit. Yes, and that actually brings up the topic of failure. I put, I put quotations around failure. I think depending on who you talk to, you get a different answer for what failure is. So I'd be very interested to hear from you. What what do you see failure as? And have there been any moments of, quote, failure in your life that have actually led to um, success or fruitfulness or new opportunities? I hate to say this, but I, I, I don't feel like I've ever had failure Everything that has happened to me that uh, was not part of my plan forced me to create a new plan (laughs) (laughs) or to try again to see if I could, uh, you know, to learn from what happened so I could fix it. And, and, you know, the, everyone has an Achilles heel, I think. And and part of my Achilles heel is I want to fix everything. It's part of why I do what I do. On the other hand, sometimes you can only f- try so much to fix something. And at a certain point, you got to be able to walk away. 
I will stay with the situation probably longer than I should because I have this need to fix things. And it's kind of what I do. Anytime something didn't happen, it just, it never occurred to me that it was a failure. It just occurred to me that I needed to find a different way to get it or I needed to move on. Yeah. And I don't know. I don't know if that's a that's huh. a good thing or a bad thing. Well, that's a great way to think about because it it's less of a you place less negativity and less embarrassment on yourself when it becomes less about I have failed to meet the mark. Right. I need to change my perspective. Right. I understand the concept. I just think that if we think in terms of failure then we fail. If it comes out of your mouth, your subconscious goes, "Well, guess it's what he wants." So when the word failure keeps coming out of your mouth, the subconscious assumes you want to have that in your life in some fashion. You have two books out, one of which is called Coffee with Cacmus. Yeah. I pulled a few little <laughs> quips from the book, and I wondered if you could. And, and this book is short, very short little things that you've said to um, clients over the years, that you've heard over the years, and it's meant to be like a, is it like a one a day, read it a day and let it sink in? Yeah, sort of. just before you have your coffee, just before you start your day, just something to sort of pop you, just give okay. you a little, you know. I love it. So here, here, um, here's the first one. You don't have to be content to be happy. Riff a little bit on you don't have to be content to be happy because I think oftentimes we equate contentment with happiness. Right. When you're trying to win a game, you may not be winning and it may be difficult, but there is a joy in the doing of it. Contentment sometimes for people means uh, placid, easy, everything's, everything's good. Well, you know what? It's life, man. Everything's not, everything's not perfect, mm-hmm. right? There's, go- there's going to be, uh, uh, there are going to be ups and downs. There are going to be fights. There are going to be struggles. That's life. That's just what it is. But that doesn't mean you're not happy. It just mm-hmm. means that, you know, you got to play the game every day. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I think when people are content, Sometimes they don't, they don't strive, they don't struggle, they don't go for that next thing. And you know what? If, you, if, if you're content at that, that's fine. But sometimes people who are content at something, they're not necessarily happy about it, but they don't, they don't want to spend the energy to make it what it should be, hmm. if that makes any mm-hmm. sense. Absolutely. So. Uh, second one, for want of a nail, the kingdom was lost. Oh, and I'll man. read, I'm going to read the lines, unless you know them no, by no, heart. No, no, Okay. Uh, for want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For want of a shoe, the horse was lost. For want of a horse, the rider was lost. For want of a rider, the battle was lost. And for want of a battle, the kingdom was lost. Yeah. It's an old, it comes from an old English uh proverb i think or an old old english story in any case basically it's just what it's saying is the littlest thing can cause great destruction or it can cause great joy there's a phrase that people say and it's an they say it incorrectly they'll say the devil is in the details i don't know if you've ever heard that phrase Mm -hmm. but the actual phrase is from a german architect and what he said was god is in the detail now, crazy how it went from God to yeah, devil. That happen, I don't know, but, 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 but the idea is, and to think about it, when he says God is in the detail, you know, as an architect, it's like, yeah, you build a house, but you take a closer look. Look, and that God is in every little um, uh, nook and cranny of how I've constructed the house, how I've designed the house, and God is in the details. So, the littlest thing that you do on a daily basis, you may think, 
are you know paltry or they don't matter but but just the way you make your coffee in the morning it means something it's a little thing but i will tell you if you make your coffee the way you love it and you taste it and it's great and you know you did a good thing that's going to springboard you to the rest of your day and the rest of your day will be different mm-hmm. if you burnt yourself in the morning with that cup of coffee <laughs> <laughs> right at oh, the yeah. end of the day you may be kicking dogs i don't know <laughs> So, yeah, for want of a nail, the kingdom was lost. Mm, That's beautiful. And finally, you've talked about this a couple times already, but I want to wrap up with it. It's not about you. How can we, when when we're building, you know, a lot of people who listen to this podcast are building their business or they are doing things that, I mean, it's kind of all about them in the sense of it's all on them to do, um, to make these things happen for themselves. How can we live a life where it's, about us, but not about us. You get what I'm saying? Sure. Stan Wyslowski used to say, um, you know, there's work on the character and there's work on oneself. You have to work on yourself. You have to exercise and eat right and, and do the things you need to do to create a career and to create a life and, and to be better every day. I mean, yes, those things are about you, absolutely. However, there comes a point where you have to realize that now to succeed, once you've done all of those things, there's a a switch that you have to flip when you're dealing with another human being or with the public, that at that point, all of those things that you did to create who you are need to allow you at that moment in time to say, all right, it's not about me. Now I'm going to take all of these things that I have learned and created to be the best person I can be to now give it away. Because if I try to hold on to it, I'm going to lose. This, the idea of it's not about you, well, it is about you and that you have to become the best version of you you can possibly be every day, as much as you can. Tomorrow, you'll always be better. But what can you be that is the best version of you today? Once you have that, then when you're dealing with uh, other people, then it allows you to give all of your energy and all of your attention to that person. And if the world was like that, <laughs> I think it would be a better place. Beautiful. Yeah, yeah. My personal favorite bit from his book that we talked about was, you don't have to be content to be happy. This is a powerful lesson for those of us who are never quite content with where we are. There's always more to create, always more to learn, always more to conquer. But this doesn't mean we can't be happy with the mountains we've already scaled. You can find Bill's books and learn more about him at cacmis.com. That's C-A-K-M-I-S dot If you liked this conversation, you should check out my episode with Alan Douglas. He's the fifth rogue featured in this series and is a cubicle rogue. Alan spent 10 years in Nashville's music industry before leaving to work for Ernst & Young, a consulting firm. He has a job, he has a boss, and he's still a rogue. And he's got some powerful words of wisdom. Find that episode and more at rogueonespodcast.com. So good to be with you today, friends. Be well. We'll talk soon. Bye.